Welcome back to the We Know Ball podcast. Sorry we missed y'all last week. Just an unfortunate string of events led to that. But we're back this week with a twofer for y'all. I'm Gavin. How are we doing today, man? Phenomenal. Happy to be back. Back in the swing of things. Back in the saddle. Talking ACC football. Yep. Huge show for you guys today. We got to cover the storylines we missed in the MLB, including one of the best brawls I think we've had in years, um, as well as some wild card updates. NFL. Football's back. We had preseason week one this year or this week, so we're going to give you some takes from that and a review of episode one of Hard Knocks. Hopping over to college football, we obviously have the chaos from last week with the death of the Pac-12 and now the uncertainty of the ACC. The AP poll dropped today, which I'm pretty excited to break down. We got some spicy takes coming for that, and then we wrap the show with our preview of the ACC. So, Gav, let's just jump right into baseball. This White Sox fight was awesome. Uh, Jose Ramirez versus Tim Anderson, fully squared up. Shout out the umpire for just getting out of the way the second Tim Anderson dropped his glove. That was awesome to see. And Tim Anderson just gets clean knocked out by J-Ram. Yeah, how about that call? Down goes Anderson. Down goes Anderson. I mean, that was... I hadn't seen a fight like that on a baseball field, I don't think, ever. I think that the first fight I've seen like that, that was straight out of the hockey playbook and... Just sums up the White Sox season. I mean, and, and the White Sox from the past five years, as you know, you look at Anderson Ramirez, and who's probably going to win the street fight? Well, you're probably taking Tim Anderson. He's a bigger dude, got the reach, but nope, just like the White Sox, he underperforms, gets knocked the fuck out, and it was hilarious. Oh, it was crazy too, because J Ram was clearly just flailing. He had no idea what he was doing. TA, like, you look at the replay in slow motion, he just missed connecting by just that much because J-Ram was pulling the short guy move, burrowing in and throwing hands, and then he finally just connects with TA. And I think the funniest part of this fight is when TA gets knocked out, like, you clearly see he gets knocked out. His manager's helping him off the field. He's struggling to stand up, full jelly legs, and then he tries to come back out after they get him. This whole fight just didn't work out for the White Sox, which, as you said, has been just a great metaphor for their season, especially with the fact that Aloy Jimenez looked like he got hurt in the fight, which was just (laughs) classic White Sox. Either way, this was awesome because it came on the heels of just an absolute horrible week for the White Sox in the media, whether it be the Kenyon Middleton story saying players are falling asleep in the dugout or missing PFPs. If you're missing PFPs in the MLB, things are not looking hot for you as a team. That's a serious problem. Not to mention uh, Yasmani uh, punching TA in the face. Or was it was the other way around. It might have nope, been Yasmani. Tim Anderson has now caught two left hooks to the jaw this year. Yeah, yeah. And I, and honestly, I can't really blame TA on that one because it sounds like Yasmani was trying to leave on his off day. Like that. That's simply quitting on your baseball team, and I'd be pissed yeah. off about Anderson too. No, absolutely. So between that and just the J Ram fight, things are just bad for the White Sox. And what has just been pretty much a horrible AL Central for them this year, anyways. Hopping over to some of the other news from this week, we have the crazy story dropping yesterday: Wander Franco in hot water after allegedly dating a 14-year-old. So basically what I've demised from this story this far, Gav, is that Wander Franco was dating a 14-year-old who he believed to be 18 because or her mother gave full approval. And then the second some money was asked for, Wander Franco was like, nah, I'm out of here. You're 14. This is crazy. But who really knows what's going on with this? He's obviously been put on leave by the MLB as they investigate this whole situation. But yeah, what are your initial reactions to this? I know we like to have fun on the pod here and that's kind of part of our, our whole personality. But I mean, this is, this is a serious situation in the MLB. You under no circumstances should Wander Franco have ever been involved with a minor, a girl of 14 years old. Don't know how, don't know the extent of the truth of these allegations. Don't really know the full story. We never will, but based on previous players, Felipe Vasquez, Trevor Bauer, who have come under similar hot water it does not look good for the future of this young player's career. Yeah, and as you said, if these allegations are true, this is absolutely disgusting and just dumb for Wander Franco in general. I mean, you are a guy who is making hundreds of millions playing a sport that many of us look wish we could be, and you're going to throw that all away because you want to be a scumbag. Just a horrible look for the Rays, especially coming off the heels of a major injury to who we thought was the front runner for the AL Cy Young, Shane McClanahan. Yeah, so that opens up that AL Young race wide open again. But to finish up the Juan Franco conversation, yeah, just disgusting if true. And I, th- I think that's all I have to say there. I think that's really all there is to say. And if true, I don't think it's very long before he's out of the league. Yeah, absolutely. 
100%. But yeah, jumping in the AL wild card race, the Mariners have been blazing hot this week. They're finally starting to hit the baseball. Teoscar Hernandez, especially one of the notable guys who has been getting it done for them. And their pitching's been great. I mean, on paper, we thought this rotation was going to be awesome with Logan Gilbert, George Kirby, and Luis Castillo. But they've really stepped up recently. Um, yeah, and I think the Mariners, they have a pretty good shot here of catching the Blue Jays, but the Blue Jays are the Blue Jays. I don't know. What are your thoughts here, Gav? I am pleasantly surprised with the brand of baseball Seattle's been playing recently, especially with their moves at the deadline, which I know we were both kind of critical of only acquiring, you know, actually acquiring nobody and giving away Paul Seward. They're, you know, they're closer, their guy, their ninth inning guy. I don't think anybody expected the Mariners to come out of the break as the team to watch out for in that race. If anything, people were expecting the Angels to really take a step up and it's been the exact opposite. They've taken a giant step backwards. I called that, but no biggie. (laughs) But as far as the race with Toronto goes, uh, I think you and I are both very high on the Blue Jays. Um, the pitching's there. Kikuchi is reliable. They got Ryu back. Jose Barrios is back to being the Jose Barrios the Blue Jays expected him to be when they signed that long-term deal. They hit the baseball. Boba Shett's a top three AL MVP candidate. It's going to take a lot for the Mariners to overcome this Blue Jays team, but if they keep playing the Brennan baseball they're playing right now, they have a real shot at it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the big thing you mentioned is Kikuchi and Ryu coming back for the Blue Jays and pitching well even because we know Alec Manoa has been really struggling for them this year. And that's been less than ideal for a team that we really expected to be making a huge dent in the AL East. As it stands today, they look to face the Twins coming in to the playoffs, which would be huge for that team. But I feel like I got to see more out of Vladdy Jr. I think he's really let me down this year. And don't get me wrong, he's not putting up bad numbers, but he's not really taking that next step to superstardom that Boba Shett had. I agree. And we're seeing the power numbers drop too, which is a serious concern with Vladdy. Uh, he's only in that lineup to hit for power. It's It's been great, though, to see the emergence of Matt Chapman. He was phenomenal for the first month and a half of the season. He's kind of come back down to earth since then, but been great to have in the lineup, as I said, with Vladdy's decreased power numbers, Bo Bichette being that top three MVP candidate. Um, up and down, they hit the baseball. I mean, Danny Jansen comes in at catcher. Alejandro Kirk not having this great of season as he, as he can. This team is probably a team you don't want to play in the playoffs, especially when they're going to go up against Minnesota round one. Absolutely. So we'll see if the Mariners catch him. I think the I think I agree with you. The Angels are dead. My fault for that horrible take. What a what a we can do to a baseball team. Um, but hopping over to another team that's really been scuffling here as they try and make up ground in the AL wild card. The Yankees are just wasting opportunity after opportunity. Uh, they had a little window here with the Red Sox starting to scuffle, but the Red Sox are right back above them. And this all kind of culminated with just a hilarious ejection from Aaron Boone last week. So a couple nights ago, Laz Diaz behind the plate, giving Cease everything on the outside corner. Boone finally gets fed up, lets him hear about it from the dugout, and a immediately gets tossed right away. Not even no conversation, no nothing. Laz Diaz also lets him have it for every you stink that Boone threw his way. Diaz gives it right back to him, tells him you haven't done shit as a Yankees manager. And I think the funniest part of all this was Aaron Boone's impression of Diaz's strikeout, which was I got to give Boone credit. It looked goofy, but it was pretty much right there. <laughs> it was it was almost almost too accurate. He was he was surely cranking that soldier boy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's disappointing to see the Yankees season thus far, a team that always comes in with high expectations and the problem's been the same all year they can't hit the baseball the yeah. starting pitching's fine the bullpen's fine but when you're relying on John Carlos Stanton Anthony Rizzo to be studs in that lineup and they aren't that's that's going to cause some problems and I think Yankee fans have every right to be upset and I think Aaron Boone is his seat is growing hotter and hotter with each game they lose and I would not be surprised if we finally see Aaron Boone out of there this year which as we said a lot of it does fall on just the injury bug but Giancarlo Stanton is clearly regressing and and that is not a good sign for a Yankees team that pretty much the face of the franchise is that one, two with Aaron Judge and Giancarlo. And they're kind of, I hate to say it, but on similar career paths right now where those big body guys just aren't being able to hold up as they get into late into the season. Yeah. Watching Yankee games right now is tough. I remember watching them there in town to play the White Sox last week, and in one game where Cease the seat where the game where Cease was on the mound and Boone got ejected, Cease walked I think seven or eight batters in that game, and the Yankees scored no runs off of them. And then coming out very next night, the Sox throw Tuki Toussaint, who's not exactly a All Star pitcher, and he strikes out five in the first two innings. It's it's tough to be a Yankees fan right now. Absolutely tough to be a Yankees fan. And another team as we jump over the NL where it's tough to be a fan of theirs is 
the San Diego Padres. Now, I'll give it to you, Gav. You said they made up a little bit of credit or a little bit of ground here in the NL wild card race and you even think they can maybe make the playoffs, but I'm still not buying San Diego. Even with that huge run differential, they are now three and seven in their last 10 and things just don't look good for them. I think their recent climb back in the wild card standings is more a symptom of teams like Cincinnati or Arizona struggling around them than this team really turning a corner. You may be right with the teams around them struggling. However, I do think that plays into their advantage as they do try to make this wild card push coming down the stretch here. At the deadline, we saw them go out and they acquired Rich Hill. They acquired G-Man Choi. Uh, they made a couple of other moves that I'll have to pull up here. But bottom line being, they're hitting the ball a lot better. And that was the problem in the first half of the season was this lineup, which is top to bottom stacked with all-star talent. Xander Bogarts, Fernando Tatis Jr., Juan Soto. They were hitting 230 as a team. Uh, over their last 20 games, that averages up to 260. They're, they're slugging better. The OPS as a team is near 800, which is way above league average, which is super promising. Now, they did lose Michael Waka for an extended period of time, and he was their guy this year to this point, which is going to hurt them. And I think they need to make up some ground in the pitching department now. Hopefully, Rich Hill can be that guy for them, the veteran presence. But you mentioned it. Arizona scuffling. My Reds, Cincinnati, we're scuffling. We can't pitch. The bullpen's falling apart. Chicago can hit, but they're struggling to beat the Mets. And I have concern for what other teams they may struggle against. Miami, they looked better as of recent, but I do think they're catchable. San Diego, only five and a half games out of that wild card spot they came out of the all-star break eight games out they've already made up two and a half games i think they make a serious push coming into september i want to believe it because i really think the additions of g-man Choi and garrett cooper were huge for that team because it kind of gives you the opportunity to move jake cronenworth around the infield and plug him and he's been hitting better as a result of it but as you mentioned waka being gone the pitching that's tough blake snell has been phenomenal it seems like the second waka went out blake snell really started to pick it up which is awesome for that team i don't know if i buy rich hill it's enough for that pitching staff to really make a dent in here. I mean, we obviously talked about them running the Dodgers and they really just struggle on the road. Last I checked, they were 25 and 32 on the road. I, I just have not seen this team be able to get a sweep in a series since what feels like the whole season. And they're going to have to if they want to make this playoff, as I just mentioned. And the schedule doesn't get any easier for them. They've got a, a date with the Baltimore Orioles this week, followed by another three-game set with the Diamondbacks. Then they take on the Marlins, a team they need to beat to get into that wild card mix. It, it's a crucial next couple of weeks for the Padres and they need to start playing some good baseball. Jumping in the teams who are playing really good baseball right now, the Philadelphia Phillies have been phenomenal coming out of this all-star break. 7-3 in their last 10. No surprise there. This staff has been awesome with the injection of Michael Lorenzen. This team is going to be scary in the playoffs, I feel like, from a starting pitching perspective, especially with you got Nola, Wheeler, now Lorenzen, and then people just forget that Tejon Walker is also a part of this staff and he has had success in the past, even in the playoffs. So, yeah, I expect this team to not really slow down anytime soon. I agree with you there, and it's team that if you go back to our pod two weeks ago i was super high on at the trade deadline with especially with their moves to go out and get lorenzen which of course pays off right away those no hitter incredible um and rodolfo castro either who's playing some nice third base for them they can move bohm over to first give you some more positional flexibility and you mentioned that pitching rotation how deep it is nola wheeler walker Lorenzen. Don't forget Christopher Sanchez. He's been pretty freaking good for this team. Not to mention Ranger Suarez, who hasn't been as good, but if you go back to last postseason, was a great veteran arm to throw out there, give you quality five innings every single time, and give your team a chance to win. This is a team that's coming off of a World Series berth. They're hungry to get back there again. I wouldn't want to play them in the playoffs. Yeah, and I think also another thing we got to mention is Trey Turner has completely turned it around these past couple weeks. And funny that Philly fans are starting to find out that maybe booing isn't the right way to motivate a guy to play better <laughs> baseball. But yeah, the Phillies, I really like them. I think they're playing a little too well right now because they are in that number one playoff spot. And Unfortunately, if they do make it past the Giants, which I fully expect them to, bar I mean, the Giants keep surprising us all year. We got to give them a little more credit than, than I do give them. But they run right to the Braves if they win that series. And that's going to be a big time series for them to prove it and prove that they are a World Series contender. The thing you hit on, depth. And that's the big thing that I feel like they lacked last year, especially. Depth is going to be huge for this team going to the playoffs. Yes, yes. And again, I think they can overcome it. They got the experience factor now. And anytime you can drop Trey Turner down to the five, 
six hole and still have your entire lineup produce, you're going to be okay. Well, that wraps it up for baseball this week. We'll definitely have some more stuff going forward as we reach the month of September in this wild card race Titans, which I fully expected to. We also got some pretty fun series with the Astros and the Rangers coming up that could decide the AL West. Um, but jumping into the big sport that's on its way back, football. Come on, Yev. NFL, baby. We love it. Yeah. Preseason week one took place this weekend and a lot of great storylines jumping out of that. My favorite thus far has to be the 49ers quarterback battle. This thing is just so interesting and has so many layers to it. You got Brock Purdy, who's coming off a major injury after a stellar season. I mean, Purdy proved it all to us. He proved that he can win in the regular season, win late in the regular season, and win in the playoffs. But obviously that injury just decimated that roster and led to probably the worst NFC championship game we've had to watch in a while. You have Trey Lance, who one week the report is he is the worst quarterback we've ever seen. The next week is he's the best. And of course, Sam Darnold's still back there. How do you see this thing shaking out for the Niners? Not well. Unfortunately, in the National Football League, you cannot start three quarterbacks. You can only start one. So that's the first problem the Niners have in their hands. And for the viewers at home, I will preface what I'm about to say with the fact that I am a CLC Ox fan. There may be a little bit of bias, but the Niners are in trouble here. Uh, you mentioned that Brock Purdy proved it to us last year. Well, he proved that he could finish out a regular season for a team that was destined to make the playoffs anyways. What he did not prove is that he can stay healthy for longer than 10 games. I worry about his durability during the 17-game regular season. The same goes for Trey Lance. He's coming off of a horrible knee injury. How does he bounce back from that? He hasn't played football in almost a whole calendar year. That is going to be a concern. And we know you're getting on the Sam Darnold. At this point is a veteran quarterback, almost like a Josh McCown-esque presence. If you toss him in there, he'll be fine. He'll win you a game or two, but he's not going to be the guy coming down the stretch. So you have a quite the dilemma here of three guys, all of which have different pros and cons associated with them, and you have to make a decision. And guess what? If you make the wrong decision, switching it up halfway, halfway through the season is going to be tough. Teams don't adjust to that very well, usually. The Niners did last year, but that's because they're already a 10-2 team to begin with before you took the reins. So the defensive talent is there. The offensive weapons are there, but I do have concerns about the quarterback durability and the ability to mesh as an offense when you have that QB uncertainty. Which really sucks for the Niners because it feels like this team has been a quarterback away from for the entirety of the 2010s, let alone 2019. And I really don't see a clear answer there. And in the NFL, having everything but having so many question marks around your QB1 is just the scariest thing you could have heading into a season where you're expected to compete to make it back to the Super Bowl. And getting back to 2019, I feel like the 49ers hopes of winning in the 2020s ended and died with that Trey Lance pick. I feel like they really got that one wrong. Granted, he's an FCS quarterback, so you're obviously taking a chance there. And yeah, it's easy to really look good on tape, whether it be running the football, or like, let alone passing the football, but he looked like a really good runner. And they're finding out that he doesn't have as much talent as he had on this tape at NC State, or not NC State, uh, North Dakota. So I think they're really in trouble with Trey Lance there. Brock Purdy, obviously coming off the big injuries, huge. Sam Darnold's the only guy on this roster who has a lot of experience under his belt. Coming back to that point about the quarterback situation being the biggest question mark for the Niners, I just don't see a way out of this for them. They're going to be too good to really draft a solid foundational quarterback. I would not be surprised, and this is me getting way ahead of myself, if we don't if we don't see the Niners' quest for six not come to fruition in the 2020s. Wow, wow. And something I think is really worth thinking about, especially considering their Super Bowl window, it's still open, but it has been open for quite a while now, and it doesn't last forever. And to your point, uncertainty at that QB1 position is a recipe for disaster in the National Football League. The best case scenario for the Niners, they make a decision on whoever it may be, Purdy, Darnold, Lance, and they go out there and they play up to their potential because all three of them have potential to lead this team not only back to the playoffs, but back to the Super Bowl because the rest of the team is filled with talent. Worst case scenario, they can't figure it out. They trial all three quarterbacks and they end up with a mediocre season, which I can see happening very easily. I think my my biggest question for you, Gavin, is this. Which of those quarterbacks can beat Patrick Mahomes? Nobody is going to be Patrick Mahomes, and nobody is going to beat Patrick Mahomes single-handedly, maybe with the exception of Joe Burrow. Maybe. It's going to be up to the rest of the team. To, to beat the Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, you have to play a perfect ball game, and the Chiefs need to make mistakes. And I think priority number one for the Niners should be not looking that far ahead, but looking to win the division first and foremost, uh, defend off the Seattle Seahawks and their revamped defense, and 
and get back into the Super Bowl. Absolutely. And we'll be keeping major tabs on that storyline as the season goes on. Another big storyline from training camp is another quarterback, Jordan Love in Green Bay. There's another guy who feels like we get a different report each week on his skill level. Obviously played, I'd say, pretty well in the preseason game this weekend, going 7 to 10, 46 yards and a score. I'm excited to see what Green Bay looks like in the post Rodgers era. I think LaFleur is a really great offensive mind, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how he reshapes this offense to really fit Jordan Love's skill set. I think it's going to be interesting, and I think it's going to be... I think it's going to work. And here's why. We just talked about the Niners. I think we're going to see Green Bay turn into San Francisco in, in the fact that their defense is going to be good. They can rush the passer. The secondary is there. And on offense, behind the Eagles, they've got the second best O-line in football. Mm-hmm. So we're going to see this team run the ball 30 to 40 times a game. It's going to be ground and pound, down your throat. Here comes Aaron Jones. Here comes A.J. Dillon. And you just need Jordan Love to be Jimmy Garoppolo and what he was for that 2019 49ers team. That's all you need out of this guy. We're so accustomed to the Packers being this QB driven franchise because they've had Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre for the better part of 30 years. We're not going to see that Packers this year. We're going to see ground and pound, smash mouth football, run it down your throats, low scoring games. I'm going to go as far as they're going to win. They're going to win the NFC North. The Vikings got very lucky last season. Luckiest team in football. What were they? Six, seven, one in one score games. They might have got undefeated actually. They're not going to get that lucky again this year. They will regress. The Detroit Lions, they're going to give up 35 points a game. I don't know what the hype is around this team. Sure, they'll score, but you simply can't win football games giving up over 30 a game. Green Bay is the most complete team in this division, and everyone's sleeping on them. You don't need Jordan Love to do a whole lot, and I think he'll be just fine. I'm inclined to agree with you, but I think it's going to be interesting to see how this season shapes out for Jordan Love and what he can really be to that team. I am a little higher on the Lions than you, but we'll get more into that when we do a full NFL preview. We'll see how it goes for the Packers. I think there is a lot of excitement to be had for this team and what they can do, especially if Jordan Love is anything above decent. We'll see how that goes. Jumping into the third storyline from this weekend it is the first impressions of the rookie quarterbacks. I think the big three left a lot on the table to be desired. Anthony Richardson looked pretty raw, but flashed his unteachable intangibles. What a two words there, but what a term there, but he looked really good until he started forcing passes, which I think is the big concern with Anthony Richardson is that he's going to force passes into the defense and they're going to get picked off. Stroud got like maybe two drives and threw four passes. Bryce Young failed to get a first down in his first two drives of play. Which of these guys do you see making the biggest impact with their team come this season? I think it has to be Anthony Richardson simply because the Colts have the talent around them. The, you know, they have Jonathan Taylor, albeit he is beat up and not going to be JT. Michael Pittman's a great wide receiver, one to have. Neither Young nor Stroud has a receiver the caliber of Michael Pittman right now. The O-line's fine and the defense is fine. So I think AR makes the biggest impact. I do think we see either Stroud or Young perform the best. I do think that they're more developed as it stands right now, but give AR some time. We might, we might see something different. I completely agree. I'm still pretty high on Anthony Richardson. Said, I think he'd be a lot for that Colts team who another team feels like a quarterback away. I mean, he's he's just on like the stuff he does on the football field. It is unteachable. He will run that football and make crazy passes. And sometimes they're going to get picked off, but sometimes they're going to hit for 50 yards downfield and be a score. So we'll see how those go. But the three biggest performances, I think, from rookie QBs this weekend has to go to be Dorian Thompson Robinson, Aiden O'Connell and Stetson Bennett. I mean, I was a huge fan of what Aiden O'Connell did this weekend, especially for a guy who has to watch Jimmy Garoppolo be his quarterback all year. It's nice to know we have at least some talent behind him should he go down. Dorian Thompson Robinson is going to be a big lift for the Browns, I think, because he has a lot of the same skills that Deshaun Watson has in running the football, and he has a really good arm. He's shown off his arm talent a lot in the preseason, but Stetson Bennett for me is the big story here, and I want to compare him to Deshaun Watson as a guy who comes out of college and he's just a winner, you know? And I think there is an aspect of being a quarterback in the NFL where you have to be a winner and know how to win, and Stetson Bennett has all that. So I wouldn't be surprised if come midseason and Matthew Stafford goes down and obviously this is a team that doesn't have a lot going for him at all right now anyways as they went all in to win that one Super Bowl but if Matthew Stafford goes down I wouldn't be surprised if we see Stetson Bennett step in and play pretty well I'm inclined to agree with you there especially on the fact that this Rams team has no expectations they're not going to win this division it's up to the Niners the Seahawks to do that they're not making the playoffs most likely so if Stafford were to go down I mean that's the end of their season right there Stetson comes in no expectations and does what he does win I would love to see that so obviously we'll have more for you guys going forward with that but we got to jump into the big story of the NFL thus far and that's the Jets with Hard Knocks which we had our debut episode come out this Tuesday I didn't like it at all Gav I've got to be completely honest with you I'm, I'm also inclined to agree with you there maybe part of it is my disdain for Mr. Aaron Rodgers and the fact that three quarters of the episode was dedicated to him and only him I really hope that we get more of the more of the niche Hard Knocks that we're used to where the unknown players are fighting for a roster spot 
And, you know, that that's the hard knocks that I think NFL fans really love. And what we got was a a parade of Aaron Rodgers and and the new newly revamped Jets, which, again, I'm not sold on. Yeah. So here are my biggest takeaways from the show. I'm glad to know Robert Sala spends a lot of his time in deep thought. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers is basically the offensive and defensive coordinator for this team. I mean, they were both. It was just like an oogling over Aaron Rodgers' fest. Yep. Aaron and Sauce are the real deal, and they're going to be super fun to watch this year. Method Man looks like he could suit up for and play for the Jets. I mean, we got to be completely <laughs> yeah. Half the show was just kind of filler shots and B-roll because they legit have no access to this team. And you can really see how that's impacted. I mean, I think when Liv Schreiber came down from the helicopter, which was just such a, such a puff piece to fill time, having Aaron Rodgers meet Liv Schreiber. But you can even see, like, when Liv Schreiber asks Aaron Rodgers, so why does no one want to do this? And then gives just the most leading look into the camera, like, why'd you guys slot me down here? This team just is not giving any access to these cameramen and it, we're suffering, the fans are suffering as a result. And you know what? I'm going to say hats off to the New York Jets franchise because what this tells me is that they want to win. They don't want to be the team that people look to for storylines and because they got Aaron Rodgers and it's New York media. They, they brought him in to win football games. And you know what? I really hope that they do. I'm not sold on it, but I really hope they do. I hope they do as well. I'm in agreement with you. I really respect the fact that they're like, hey, we want to do this the right way. We want to be a football team that's taken seriously. I think that speaks a lot to like what Robert Saul is as a head coach. I think he's a very good head coach and a guy who who wants to win badly and he knows how to win. He did it in San Francisco with that defense and their defense is going to be unreal. So one of my favorite storylines has to be though that Zach Wilson like just clearly hates his life. I would not <laughs> be surprised if throughout that entire interview Nathaniel Hackett just had a gun and cue cards pointed at him behind the camera because you can see the pain through his eyes as he was talking about how much he enjoyed learning under Aaron Rodgers. Hey man, some people say backup QB is the best position in football. You get paid millions and you have to look pretty. That's about it. Yep, pretty much. So, especially in New York, I think Zach Wilson has it pretty easy. I'm not too concerned about him, but yeah, that guy, things are not looking good for his future. Which props to the Jets for keeping him around, but we'll we'll definitely see if Aaron Rodgers can teach him anything. I did not see enough in these couple past couple preseason games to see that Zach Wilson has made any strides as a quarterback. I, I agree with you there wholeheartedly. So, jumping out of the NFL and jumping into college football, which probably had the biggest week of stuff we got to catch up on. Um, the death of the Pac-12 and the Power 5 seems imminent at this point. Oregon and Washington headed to the Big Ten. Arizona, ASU, and Utah headed to the Big 12. And that kind of left Washington State, Oregon State, Cal, and Stanford in no man's land. And what were your initial reactions to this crazy news? It's 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 a free-for-all right now with teams just looking to get in front of realignment because at this point, it's it's inevitable. And it poses a few questions. It poses what's next for the Pac-12. It poses what's next for realignment. And it poses what's the ACC going to do? Because now they're kind of in limbo too. I'll address the Pac-12 issue first. I think Cal and Stanford are going to be just fine. They play in the Bay Area. It's a very marketable or marketable sports area to broadcast from TV deal TV deal wise, which is a driving factor behind this realignment in the first place. Um, Bay Area being the number six TV market in the world. Great academic school prestigious in that regard and they bring other sports that are not just football to the table too so I think they're okay in the fact that they'll either be able to go elsewhere or even start the Pac-12 re-expansion maybe they expand into the Mountain West and form a revamped West Coast Conference who knows I think they'll be okay as for Oregon State and Washington State not exactly academic powerhouses they could be in some trouble and I think the biggest thing you hit on there is just deals like this always prove how much we forget that TV money plays such a big role in college football I mean Fox and ESPN are basically in control of conference coordination at this point and the Pac-12 TV zeal was just such a shit show jumping back to Larry Scott the former commissioner he really fucked them over here not really securing a linear TV spot another huge takeaway I have this was linear TV still runs college football and college or sports in general I mean it seemed like the Pac-12's only out was a deal with Apple and Apple TV and no one's gonna tune in to watch their team like play on Apple TV especially in a conference like the Pac-12 which is on late at night if you're on the east coast and if you're on the west coast and you're a fan of these teams it kind of scums you into having to pay a fee now to watch your team. Yeah, you're right. And that was the driving factor behind all these teams getting the F out of there and moving on to conferences where not only can their fans watch on linear television, as you just said, but their revenue share is almost double. Yeah. And if I'm a high level recruit choosing a school where which I want to play, I want to be on national television. And you bet I'm going to get my ass to a school that's playing on national television. I'm not going to spend or sit around spending my time, especially if I'm a high ranking recruit, which seems like Oregon and Washington seem to be headed towards grabbing more and more these days. I'm not going to sit around and let 
Maya Shine get stolen by a horrible TV deal. Correct. So you mentioned what's next for Cal and Stanford. I really don't know. I think we're really going to see how things shake out with the ACC going forward. The news dropped today that Florida State is staying and they missed the exit deadline today, which they're also broke right now. I mean, they had to reach out to JP Morgan to inquire about a loan to leave the ACC, which ACC, crazy TV deal running through 2036. So these teams might be stuck for a minute, which is really going to hurt their brands as schools because essentially college football is just becoming brands these days. And which mm-hmm. big brand can attract the most eyes to the most TVs and make the most money? So I think we're definitely going to see Florida State and Clemson make a big push to leave this next season. And I think they'll do it. I don't think they're headed to the SEC because the SEC appears to be happy with the brands they currently have. I think Texas and Oklahoma were all the shopping they really wanted to do. And now they have them. People forget Texas is the only team in America that has its own network. Like, you know how there's the Pac-12 network and the Big Ten network? Oh, they- network baby. On ESPN. So Texas is a huge brand for the SEC to get and probably make up for any money they lose by not going after Florida State and Clemson. The ACC appears to be headed towards becoming a basketball conference, which I don't think is the worst for them, but losing Clemson and Florida State is kind of a big deal for them. I think it's exciting to see Clemson and Florida State go to the Big Ten because that's going to just add to the prestige of the conference and a conference that our team is safe, safely sound in right now. So we don't really have to worry about any of this. It's going to be really be interesting to see what happens with the ACC going forward. You know, we just mentioned the fact they're, they're kind of just in limbo right now. They have two perennial powerhouses in Clemson and Florida State as far as college football is concerned with the rest of the conference being somewhat mediocre. The direction that college football realignment and conference reorganization is headed in, in my opinion, centers around really two tiers with tier one being those super conferences, 20 to 24 teams, Big Ten, SEC. And right now the game is not getting left behind getting in those conferences and avoiding getting stuck in the tier two conference or super conference, which will be still 20, 24 teams, but formed around the former Big 12, right? We see the Arizona's, Arizona State's the world going there. If you're Clemson and Florida State, you really don't want to go to that Tier 2 conference. If you're a team like Duke, Pitt, Syracuse, you might be fine going that route. We got to give props to the Big 12 because they've done an exceptional job of staying relevant. I think another team where obviously basketball doesn't really make you money as a school until March rolls around, but they've done a great job of adding schools that are pretty good at football in Utah. And I think Arizona can get back there one day. ASU, still a lot of question marks for that team. Basketball-wise, both very sound schools. So I think the Big 12 is definitely headed towards more of a basketball conference. And we'll, it'll be really interesting to see if they can stay around and maybe even form the Power 3, which I think would be huge for college football to kind of retain some parity in all this, but it just doesn't look like that's what's going to happen. Yeah, there's just there's more questions than answers right now. I mean, especially in the very near future, what happens to the college football playoff? Because we're expanding to 12 teams here in 2024. And to get in, it's the Power 5 champions plus the highest ranking group of five and then six at-large bids, well, Pac-12 is gone now. So what happens to those Power 5 bids? Is it now just five five auto bids and then seven at-large bids? And how does that landscape change as conferences keep shaking up? And I think once that landscape changes, we're going to get a really clear picture of how all this is going to shake out because Clemson and FSU still want to be in that conversation to make the college football playoff 100%. They want to be in that playoff conversation 100% and they will be if they can make that move to the Big Ten, which I fully expect them to do. But it's going to be hard to see teams like North Carolina and Utah kind of get out of there as teams who have always been on that cusp of becoming great and have had those opportunities to become great. But I think the thing this really sucks for is the regionality of college football, which is something that a lot of us fell in love with as we grew up watching college football. A lot of these rivalries just aren't going to survive. Washington State and Washington especially, like the talent difference on those teams in the next five years is going to be astounding. We're not going to have any idea like how this affects all that and it's going to suck. Yeah, yeah. That's that's one aspect that we're going to lose when these conferences inevitably realign. We're going to lose other aspects too. I mean, the travel for these for these young men and these these players is going to become difficult. Ne- you know, negotiating TV deals and who gets the the revenue cut and how much do you get? That's going to be tough too. Like I said, a lot more questions than answers right now. I think step one is figuring out where everyone falls into place once realignment is officially over because by no means is it anywhere close to over right now. Not in the least. And I'll tell you which conference is going to be just fine. The Maction, baby. They are not going anywhere. They have that Wednesday, Thursday schedule on lock. It's going to be great. Got to look out for the next Carson Steele. So conference realignment sucks. It sucks that we have to be talking about this right now, but let's jump into some actual college football that is going to affect this season. The AP poll dropped today for the first time. And let me read you off this top 10 gap because I think it's pretty interesting here. So we got holding it down. Number one, no surprise, the Georgia Bulldogs. Number two, Michigan. Number three, Ohio State. Four, Alabama. Five, LSU. Six, USC. Seven, Penn State. Florida 
State at 8 over Clemson at 9, and then Washington at 10. What were our racial reactions to this top 10? The AP poll is as high on the Huskies as we are, it seems, and for good reason. Uh, my other initial reaction is two Big Ten teams in the top three. Yeah. Awesome D. I think they got Michigan properly rated. The Buckeyes with their QB questions, I don't know. They'll be fine. I mean, yeah. they'll be fine. The receiver the receiver room is the best in the country, and the offense is going to score damn near 50 a game, but they're not loving Alabama like they usually do, putting them at four, just barely on the cusp of that college football playoff. LSU also took a huge jump here going to five. They're really high on them. USC, I think they're a little too high on. I didn't see enough out of USC, especially a team that lost its conference championship game, to be giving them credit at number six. I mean, they love Caleb Williams, and how could you not? And you got to love Lincoln Riley and what the offense does, but to your point, we need to see more of that defense before we really buy into this USC bandwagon. Yeah. Other teams that really interested me in the top 25, jumping out of the top 10 here, Wisconsin at 19, which that's a huge jump for us as a football team. I really like that one. North Carolina at 21. I know you're not a huge fan of the Tar Heels, and we'll get into that a little later, but the biggest surprise for me, what is Texas A&M doing there at 23? That's They're there in SEC school, and you know they do have some history there, and you know it's 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 hard not to not to try to buy into the Aggies, but I think the 20 through 25, and then about 10 to 15 teams beyond in the 26 to 40 range, it's going to see a lot of shakeups in the first couple of weeks, inevitably as it always does. Absolutely, because our favorite team, Texas Tech, is right on the outside there, dropping yep. 30 votes to Iowa, which the AP must really think that offense fixed some big question marks because I'm still not entirely sold on Iowa, but they are a Big Ten powerhouse. You got to give them respect. South. Carolina also out there at 73 votes. I think that could change very soon as that team jumps into the season and starts getting after some competition. Another team I really like out here, Kentucky at 14 with 14 votes, and we'll get into them as we get into the SEC, but it's going to be pretty interesting to see how this back half, I think 15 or like at least 20 through 25 is very shaky. Yeah, as as I said, it's 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 going to change throughout the year. I mean, with teams winning, losing, up, down, whatnot. I think with the nail on the head with Iowa at 25, I don't think they stay there very long with the offensive question marks. They're not scoring 27 a game, which means that Perenz is not keeping his job. <laughs> Texas Tech were on the outside. They hop in there really quickly, especially after their week one victory over the Oregon Ducks. It's showtime, baby. Tyler Show, all in, all yep. in on him. Yep. And yeah, you mentioned Kentucky. It's part of the SEC. We got that breakdown coming later this week. Uh, we'll talk more about that when time comes. So yeah, and we also going to give a shout out to James Madison in South Alabama for both receiving one vote. Liberty as well. Good for them. So the AP poll, entirely shakeup. A lot of shakeups coming after week one i assume a team or a conference that doesn't really have a lot of shakeups coming for me is the acc which we will be breaking down for y'all this week so let's just jump right into it here i think this is more of a conference of individual players than teams as we kind of have the top two already set here with florida state and clemson i think let's jump into florida state right away mike nervell has just done an excellent job in rebuilding this team in the three years he's been there he returned a ton of talent 11 all acc starters that's headlined by jordan davis and trey benson two guys and I'm a huge Jordan Travis guy I think he is going to be I think he's going to be right there in New York come December and Trey Benson is no joke either I honestly think he will be like a lot better than he was last season only 990 yards which is great but I think he's going to break that a thousand yard mark leading receiver Johnny Wilson also back the O-line is going to be very solid which we talked about last week college football games are one in the trenches defensively looking very sound sack artist Jared versus back I need a little more depth in the linebacker and safety department from this team though and I think that's where they're really going to struggle and we talked about it last week, obviously. You need to be good up front to win games in this league. You know what? I think the linebackers are going to be okay. They're they're not as strong as the as the D-line is, of course. I mean, you have Jared Verse, who's probably going to be a top 10 pick in the NFL draft come, come next April. Um, just an absolute beast on that line with another NFL prospect and Fabian Lovett there at, at the tackle as well. But the linebackers are okay. They got a one-two punch of Tatum Bethune and Kalen Deloach that they'll make some plays. And I, I don't think they need to be that great. Sure, they lack depth, but the defensive backs are going to be great. Omari and Cooper, he left, but you bring in Renardo Green and Jerry and Jones. Um, and coming from Virginia, you got French Frenchrell Cypress. Broke up 14 passes last season and made 39 stops and did, didn't even play every game. You mentioned the offensive line. That is going to be the focal point of this team, in my opinion. All you really need from Jordan Travis is to take care of the football, and the rest will work itself out. The line's going to protect them. You mentioned they're, they're going to run the football just fine. And on the defensive side, come up more takeaways could be nice, but they're well-rounded. That's the word I use at Florida State this year. They are well-rounded and this Mike Norvell defense is where my eyes jump to immediately. When he was over at Memphis, right? He was never known as a defensive, as a defensive coach. It was always about the offense. Running ball, making big
big holes, flying through them. And the defense is okay. In his four years at Memphis, they ranked 106th, 117th, 89th, and 61st in total defense. So they improved every year. At Florida State in four years, it's been 107th, 65th, three years, sorry. And finally last year, they were 15th in total defense. They've taken strides each and every year. I think they continue to do that same thing this year. Up front in the trenches, they're going to be great. The corners are going to be fine. Linebacking core lacks depth, but they've got a great one-two punch. And you got Jordan Travis. The Florida State Seminoles can be a very, very, very dangerous dangerous football team this year. And I think they're even a college football playoff contender. And that all kind of goes down week one when they play LSU. That game is going to decide whether they, not whether they win do well in the ACC, because I think they're going to win the ACC by a long shot. But they have to beat LSU and they have to beat Clemson this year. They cannot keep losing games to Clemson if they want to be taken seriously going forward here. Other than that, on the schedule, I'm not seeing a whole lot. A couple trap games with Miami and Duke, but I also expect them to handle Florida as well pretty handedly. So this team is set up for a lot of success here going forward. They need to come out of the gates hot. You make a great point there. They they need to, at the very least, play LSU tough. Obviously, a win would be nice there, but that LSU team is going to be equally deadly, if not more deadly than this Florida State team. So a loss there isn't the end of the world, especially being a non-conference loss. But they get Clemson just three weeks later on September 23rd in Death Valley. And that is the game that sets the tone for the rest of the year right there. They need to come out of there with a win and they need to move on and take care of business the rest of the way. They then get a bye week. Then they get Virginia Tech, Syracuse, Duke, all at home. You can't lose any of those games. You then go on the road to Wake Forest and on the road to Pitt. They need to be very careful with the Pitt Panthers. I will say that. That's a team Absolutely. that is, it, it, they're always ready to upset the big dogs. Then you get Miami at home, North Alabama and Florida. The last eight games of the schedule, realistically, they should be going eight and no. Will they? We'll see. But yeah, the Clemson game is the big one. And then obviously LSU, that's a completely different team than the one they saw jumping into the season last year. So they got to be ready for some firepower from Jalen Daniels. Jumping over to Clemson though. And Gav, you got to allow me to hate on Clemson for a second. This offense has been nowhere near good enough since Trevor Lawrence went to the NFL. And it's hard to replace him. I totally get it. Heisman winner, guy who brought you into the upper echelon of college football after going and losing to Sean Watson. Now, while a lot of fans will blame this lack of like talent at quarterback on DJ Younglele and that whole situation, I think a lot of it's to blame on the coaching staff. They just did not have a really good backup plan in place for when Trevor Lawrence left and they got caught dragging their feet. DJ Oyunglele was nowhere near ready to go for that team. And this offense still to me, it's very one dimensional. It's all running backs. There's no one at receiver I can point to and be like, that's the guy. This is a team that has had like DeAndre Hopkins, T Higgins, like big name receivers coming out of this school that have been the guys that have helped them return to the college football playoff year in year out. And I just don't see anyone here. I mean, Antonio Williams, maybe, but other than that, there's not a lot of guys there. I also think they're kind of whiffing on Cade Klubnik here. The guy's 194 pounds, Gavin, at quarterback. He's going to get hurt by his own lineman, let alone when he gets sacked. Now, running game and O-line wise, I love this team. I think Will Shipley and Mafa are a great one-two punch for them. And Klubnik's even a great runner. The O-line is forever solid for this team, but I don't like Clemson this year. I mean, I like them to do well in the ACC. I don't think their offense is anywhere good enough to compete for a college football playoff spot. The Clemson Tigers, I agree, won't be competing for a CF for a CFP championship, I do think they compete for a spot. And here's why. They're going to be good in the departments where Clemson is always good and the departments where they can compete with the SEC talents of the world, specifically in the trenches. It all comes back to that, right? The offensive line is going to be the best in the ACC. They return their center and their two tackles, which to me are the three most important positions on the on the offensive line, setting the edge and setting the middle. They get back Will Shipley. He's going to be one of the best running backs in the ACC, one of the best in college football. He's going to be your workhorse. Again, Kate Klubnik, undersized, but you don't need a whole lot from him if your offense is going to be running through the running game. You mentioned the receivers. You're right. There's not that guy, but you know who is that guy? Garrett Riley. New offensive coordinator comes in. Dabo hires the guy that made the team TCU offense, one of the most explosive in the country last year at the big plays. And that is where Clemson really lacked last year with the big plays. They didn't get enough deep passes down the field. And I think Garrett Riley is the guy to come in and make that happen. Is the talent there? Not necessarily. But if there's a coaching staff that can get it done, I do think it's Dabo and Garrett Riley. You move over to the defensive side of the ball. And we mentioned them stacking up with SEC talents in recent years. Again, starts up front, the tackles. They've got 300 pound dudes inside who are just absolute 
monsters. Duke Orhoro and Tyler Davis, they're right there with the best in the country. Uh, the proven depth is thin, yes, but they got two killers. I do have question marks regarding the depth and the rest of their defense, especially in the linebacker core. I know we just talked about Florida State having thin depth there. Clemson's even thinner. The one thing that Clemson can rely on is the fact that they've been here before. They've been the favorite. They know to play as the favorite. Dabo's still Dabo. He'll be fine. Not going out of the transfer portal is certainly hurting them right now. But the addition of Garrett Riley hopefully opens up some big plays on offense. And they need to get the big plays on defense too. Come up with more takeaways, come up with more timely sacks. Those are the keys to their season for me. I also got to mention Nate Wiggins on the defense. I think he's going to be a star for this team. I, I agree with you, the Garrett Riley hire. I really liked it. Streeter was not getting things done. But when it comes down to me for college football, I don't really want to rely on a guy I hired to coach my team. I want to rely on the players I recruited to play the game. And I think Dabo, if he has a really bad season this year, which I'm not expecting him to by any means, he doesn't really have that that many challenges on his schedule besides Notre Dame and FSU. But I think we could be close to Ryan Day territory for him. Oof, that's saying a lot because he's uh, he's had some great success in Death Valley for the better part of a decade now. I'm taking a look at their schedule right now, and that's going to be what, what helps him keep his job. I mean, all their tough games are at home. They've got Florida State at home. They've got Notre Dame at home. They've got North Carolina at home the only tough road game they have is Miami and I guess South Carolina at the end of the season but when you're getting all the tough games at home it's going to be a lot easier to win those games and go on to potentially represent the ACC in the college football playoff and I agree with you I don't say I don't think Dabo's anywhere near on the hot seat this year by any means but I think if he does not come out and perform and return to being a college football playoff powerhouse he could be in the conversation for the hot seat coming up here because I think he has failed to show me that he can develop a quarterback since Trevor Lawrence and granted I'm not giving him a huge time here but I'm also a Dabo hater so I got to preface this with that and I feel like it just kind of feels like to me that the college football playoff era has passed them by and if they don't start getting into dipping their toes in the water that is the transfer portal that it's probably going to continue to pass them by because I'm looking at their losses last year and Notre Dame that's kind of acceptable but you should not be losing to South Carolina especially in a shootout with your defense and you're gonna have to come back and play them right again this year and they're at South Carolina this time which is even more dangerous but that Tennessee loss is very telling to me and from what I've seen from Cade Kublik does not look like a great quarterback granted he sat behind DJ Ngolele for all of last season last year and maybe I'm not giving him enough credit but I, I'm not sold on him yet he's gonna have to prove it to me I, I think he takes a step forward this year but you're right last year was not exactly anything to go to go off of um, in terms of highlights especially as it concerns that Tennessee bowl game but give him some time give him some time a team another team that we need to give time to Miami I don't know what they're gonna look like this year but I know you're really high on them so I'm gonna give you the floor here let me just say the things I like and dislike about Miami. Things I like about Miami. Tyler Van Dyke is a very good quarterback when healthy. Xavier Restrepo returning is huge for a team that loves to air the football out. Kareem Kitchens and Jalen James Williams will be the leaders of that defense. And I like Mario Cristobal. Things I don't like about Miami. Their running back situation, which lacks a ton of depth. Their new O-line, which is supposed to protect the quarterback who's injury prone. September 9th versus Texas A&M and Mario Cristobal. <laughs> you got Mario Cristobal on two of those lists right there. Yep. Yep. So <laughs> I'm going to give you the floor here to talk about Miami. Go for it, man. I am very high on this team this year and I know it's taking a big risk especially coming off a five and seven campaign last year and with a lot of question marks and uncertainty regarding what they're going to look like coming out of the gates where I'm going to start is on the offensive side of the ball everything stalled last year injuries inconsistencies they didn't have a running game no downfield plays it was all very very bad I am very high on the offensive line this year and that's a common theme with these good teams is the O-line 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 they're getting a former super recruit in Zion Nelson he was out last year with a knee injury he comes back and that knee injury is a concern can he stay healthy but if healthy he's a superstar they're also bringing in Matt Lee from UCF to play center and Javion Cohen from Alabama to be a guard sure up the interior of that line they both have all ACC potential you've got five stars at tackles on the outside and Francis Malgoa and Samson Okunlala they're going to be young they're going to be freshmen but they are five stars and if they play up to that five star potential that O line is right up there with Clemson and FSU as the best in the conference, in my opinion. Now you move on to where they need to be better, and that's at the QB position. Tyler Van Dyke. He is way too good to throw for less than 2,000 yards and only 10 scores. Now, part of that is staying healthy, and I do believe the offensive line keeps him healthier this year. The receivers are okay. They're nothing to write home about, but they do return almost everybody, aside from their tight end, Will Mallory, but you bring 
in Cam McCormick from Oregon, and he fills that role just fine. At running back, I there, there's talent there. There's talent there. Henry Parrish led the team last year, 604 yards and four scores, but he was also hurt for stretches last season, so he couldn't really break out. And you bring in another star recruit, Mark Fletcher. He's supposed to help. Um, and you also get A.J. Allen coming over, coming over from Nebraska. It's a collection of guys that are unproven, however, have the potential to be absolute stars in this conference. Now we hop over to the defensive side of the football. And where I'm super high, again, another great hire, Lance Gidry. Comes over from Marshall. The Marshall Thundering Herd, who, Jasper, they had the seventh best defense in the country last year. Marshall did. They allowed less than three, less than 300 yards a game, 16 points a game, fourth against the run, fifth in takeaways, and number one at generating third down stops, which is an area of serious concern from the Miami defense last year. They returned their best pass rusher in Akeem Mesador at one end, and they've got Jafari Harris on the other end. They're going to get after the quarterback. You pair that up with a future NFL tackle in Leonard Taylor in the middle, as well as Branson Dean coming over from Purdue. And that defensive line is really scary. Super, super scary. And there's not a better safety tandem in this conference than Cameron Kitchens and James Williams. Mm -hmm. Kitchens picked off six passes last year and finished tied with Williams for the team leading stops with 59. You bring over a veteran corner from UCF and Devontae Brown, 16 broken up passes last year, three picks of the last two years, and Oklahoma transfer Jaden Davis. And that secondary looks pretty good. And Miami runs a 4-2-5 defense. And the two in the middle is deep and they're talented. Corey Flagg comes back. He was second on the team last year, 56 tackles. And he's going to be the backup, probably, to Francisco uh, Malgoa. Washington State transfer uh, coming in as a 6'3", 230-pound do-it-all playmaker. This team has talent. They're just unproven. And that's why I'm high on them. Everyone's writing them off five and seven year last year. What's happened with Miami? Well, what's happening is they're rebuilding. And guess what? I think they are rebuilt. What needs to happen with Miami? They need to take care of the football and convert on third down. Miami last year, when they turned the ball over multiple times, 0-6. When they didn't, 5-1. and You take care of the football and you have all these playmakers on offense and defense, they're going to be very good. They're going to be very, very good. I like a lot of what you had to say. And I think this is a team that I just have so many question marks about. I can't fully buy into it, but I completely agree with you. The talent is absolutely there. And September 9th, I mentioned that date because that's when we're going to figure out what the hell this both of these teams are in Texas A&M and Miami because those are both a lot of teams with a lot of question marks, but a lot of talent. So we'll see how that goes. Other than that, looking at the schedule, I think I like them to get back to a bowl game. So Miami's definitely heading in the right direction by every mean. I don't think they're ever going to finish ranked in the seventh in the ACC again until whatever Mario Cristobal has going blows up. But I too am cautiously, I'm cautiously optimistic about Miami. I'll put it like that. Yeah, and that's 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 fair. And looking at their schedule, they've got some tough games on the road. They got to go on the road to North Carolina, North Carolina State, and Florida State. They do get Clemson at home and they get that Texas A&M game. Is that a neutral site or is that at home? The Texas A&M game, I'm pretty sure is neutral site. From what I've read, it's not really showing up on my schedule here, but I want to believe it's neutral site. I believe they're playing in Dallas. Okay, yeah. But, you know, other than that, they get Virginia at home, Louisville at home. They don't play Duke. Yeah, they're going to struggle against Florida State on the road, obviously, and North Carolina, North Carolina State road games can be a challenge. But beyond that, Clemson, look out for this October 21st matchup because they got to go on the road to Miami and that's not going to be an easy place to win. No, not in the least. So I'm excited for Miami this year, but I remain cautiously optimistic. I think they did really well in the transfer portal. Another team that did really well in the transfer portal that we have to talk about because they're essentially an ACC team is Notre Dame. Marcus yep. Freeman, after kind of an up and down first year for his fight in Irish, went shopping, Gavin, shopping. Got arguably the best quarterback in the portal in Sam Hartman, pairing him with a really good OC in Jared Parker. Hartman gives the Irish that downfield threat it felt like they were missing all last year and probably for the past decade. Yeah, uh, we were talking before the pod started about their ceiling and their floor. and Their ceiling is superstardom. This team is loaded. Their floor is what we're accustomed to seeing from Notre Dame, which is underperformance. And similar to Jordan Travis and him not having to be that guy and do it all, even though it probably will be, Sam Hartman does not need to be that guy and do it all. He's coming in like every great team that I love. Notre Dame returns great tackles and a great center. They've got a great offensive line shirt up on the edges and in the middle. You pair that with Audric Estime in the backfield, and they're going to take a lot of the stress off Sam Hartman early. Pair all that with a defense that's sure to be scary and like the Notre Dame defenses of the past, and you look at the team, they can really, really cause some damage. The only thing that they have going against them is they, they can't play for a conference championship. Yeah, which does suck, but they do have a loaded schedule here. Another guy I really want to highlight on offense is, I mean, Audrey Castine, obviously, but I think their receiving core, Jane Thomas and Tobias Merriweather, both have tremendous potential for them. And I think Sam Hartman is going to completely flip the script on Notre Dame wide receivers from the past. Benjamin Morrison also is going to be a superstar on defense. He had six interceptions last year. Is he going to reach that number again? I don't know, but he's a hell of a 
the cornerback, and he's going to play his way right into a very good sitting in the NFL draft. What I need to hold up is that defensive line, though. You lose Isaiah Foskey to the NFL. I think they did a really good job of adding talent to it, but there's still a couple question marks there. And the lack of depth at safety could be their undoing. Yeah, but I think they make up for it in the cornerback department. I mean, you get uh, Benjamin Morrison coming back, as you said, and he's going to he's, he's gonna be an All-American. Cam Hart coming off a shoulder injury. He'll be back. He'll be fine. The safeties, while there is question marks, they're experienced, so I'll give them that. The key to the Irish season, for me, I know we talk about Sam Hartman and his ability to be that guy and connect with those star-studded receivers, and they will. They need to get that ground attack rolling and rolling early, and here's why. Last season, when they ran for 150 yards or more, and that, that's that's a number that's very attainable for any team. 7-0. and 2-4 and four when they didn't, and when they did, those two wins they got were against Cal and Navy, and those were some close games for the Irish. Going back to 2017, six years ago, when they rushed for 150 or more, they're 48 and one. So yes, I love bringing in Sam Hartman and having that sure thing at quarterback, but get Estime going, get that O-line going, and the Irish are going to be a force to be reckoned with. It feels like obviously the rushing attack and the tight ends have been good forever, but now with Sam Hartman, you have a chance for Estime to really take that next step because it's going to take the pressure off him to make those big plays in the open field. But let's jump into their schedule because this is where things get kind of muddled for them. You got Ohio State, USC, and Clemson all on there. Defensively, I think that, and here's where the safeties really come in, is against Ohio State and Clemson for me, because those are two teams who can run the football. I think where a lot of people forget about Trey Henderson over at Ohio State, he is going to be a force to be reckoned with and a guy we forgot to mention in our Big Ten preview. If he gets past that first and second level, that third level needs to be sound to stop that guy, because he will take it to the house every time. Same goes for Will Shipley, but I think Notre Dame, we talked about their ceiling, it is college football playoff or Notre Dame. Yes, and that's that's precisely accurate. They're either going to sneak their way in there at maybe 11 and 1. They're certainly not going 12 and 0. And to go 11 and 1 would be an absolute miracle. Yeah. But with the talent they have, it's possible. But I also wouldn't, I would be equally unsurprised to see them go 8 and 4. For you, what's the big game you have circled on the schedule for them? It's got to be the USC game. They're getting the Trojans at home in South Bend. They, they can afford to lose that Ohio State game because you look at the rest of their schedule up until the USC game. They get Navy, Tennessee State, North Carolina State. Central Michigan, the Buckeyes, at Duke, and at Louisville. They're going to be favored in every single one of those games. They should win every single one of those games. Let's assume they're coming into that game with USC at 6-1. and one. That's, that, that's make or break right there. You get your arch rivals at home by week next. You, you need to win that game if you want to get yourself into the college football playoff conversation. Yeah, you need to get after against USC. I also really think the at Clemson matchup is huge for them because that's a game where if it becomes a shootout, I love Notre Dame to have the guy that's going to make that big pass. Yes, and I, I agree. But the reason I circle that USC game is because if you lose, if you're Ohio State and you, not, not Ohio State, if you're Notre Dame and you lose to Ohio State and then you lose to USC, you're, you're not getting into the playoff as a two-loss independent football organization. No. And also props to them for staying independent as we wrap up this. Yes, call. for now. For now. Right. Jumping to the other big storyline, I think, and the second biggest probably for me is this North Carolina versus Duke thing. Because finally, we're not talking about them as basketball teams, and it's going to be pretty fun to watch. So for North Carolina, Drake May is unreal. We know that. 38 touchdowns, 4,000 yards to the air last season. Added great talent receiver in Devontae Walker. Running back Elijah Green, the O-line that allowed 40 sacks last year, need to step up for this offense to be special, which I believe it totally has the potential to be. I just need to see those O-linemen really take the next step. Defensively, though, it's bad. It's, it's so bad. Really bad. A defense that allowed 30.8 points per game last year returns almost all of its starters. Cedric Gray and Power Eccles are both really good linebackers, but they're not enough. I mean, 61 points to Appalachian State is pretty fucking ridiculous. Really bad. And you hit all the points that I wanted to talk about. Drake May's Drake May. He's going to be a top 10 pick in the NFL draft next year. He should be playing in bubble wrap this entire season. The wide receiver room is one of the best in the country. They're going to be explosive throwing the football. We know that. You're not going to stop that. But the O-line's a question mark. As you said, they gave up 40 sacks last year. That's that's not going to cut it, especially with a guy that needs to stay healthy for the future of his own career in Drake May. Also, in the running, in the running back department, Drake May ran the ball 184 times last year. That is simply unacceptable. And he cannot do that again this year. He won't do that again this year if he's a smart dude who's focused on his future. They're going to be explosive in the passing game. And as you said in the defense. They were horrible last year in pass rush and pass defense, as well as third down stops. If they can't get after the passer, defend the pass, and get off the field on third down again, it's going to be a long season for the Tar Heels. I think, looking at their schedule from last year, and this is weirdly like the biggest game they sent, 24 points to Florida A&M. Florida A&M has no business scoring 24 points against this team. No, or against anybody for that matter, but yeah. especially a 
power five conference team. The good news for North Carolina, though, is there are a lot of shootouts on this schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Bodes really well for them. I think Appalachian State probably going to be a shootout again. Minnesota, they can win that game if they do everything right offensively. Pittsburgh's going to be a shootout. Syracuse could be a shootout. Miami, uh, uh, who knows? I have no idea what Miami's going to look like, so I can't even tell you. Virginia, they should stomp them. Georgia Tech, they should stomp them. I don't even know Campbell University existed until I looked at the schedule. Going to stomp them. Duke is going to be a shootout at Clemson. Who knows? I mean, Clemson really dogged them last year. I don't think they're going to be able to beat Clemson. Clemson's very good. And then at NC State to wrap up the year, that's going to be a shootout. They do avoid Florida State, which is very good. But with the only highlight of this team being its quarterback and receivers, I I really don't expect much out of the Tar Heels this year. Neither do I. Which leads us to our talk about Duke with Mike Elko just doing an awesome job in rebuilding this team year one. Shout out to him. Starting with Riley Leonard, who I expect to be even better this year, putting up 33 total touchdowns on the ground and in the air. Unreal. Threats at all the skill positions offensively, honestly. I think Jordan Waters is great at running back. Eli Pankle, Jalen Calhoun, and Jordan Moore, who they converted from running back. That's a very solid core of deep threats. O-line needs to be solid, though. Similar to North Carolina, an area of concern last year. Hopefully they've shored that up in the spring, but I'm still pretty unsure about them. Defensively, this D-line is awesome. Dwayne Carter, beast. RJ Oban, beast. But there are some holes in the linebacker position. Shaka Hayward out of the picture now. So I think this team returns a lot of talent and I think they're going to be super exciting. I just, I don't know without the big news in the ACC this year is obviously no more divisions. I don't know if they can reach that nine win mark again. You know what? I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go out and say they're, they're going to, and, and here's why Riley Leonard, who was great last year is going to take another step forward and all the running he did last year, he still had the ability to do that. But to your point, Jordan Waters and all the top backs and the rotation and the returning they're going to take on more of the heavy lifting. That offensive line led the ACC last year in sacks allowed. It was fine for the ground game, but they get three starters back, including all ACC tackle Graham Barton. And you know, I love my tackle with the O-line. So they're going to be okay on, on that side of the football. And the reason you bring in Mike Elko is to revamp that defense. That's what he does. They went from completely miserable to just fine in just one year. He did lose a defensive coordinator, Rob Smith, but you bring in Tyler Santucci and he pretty much serves the same purpose. They were great at getting to the ball last year and making big plays happen. They were locked down against the run and they were just fine against good passers and they they forced so many turnovers. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see that again this year because the secondary is going to be great. They've got potential all ACC performers in and also a young corner in Chandler Rivers. They bring in Miles Jones from Texas A&M. They bring in Al Blades from Miami. And the thing about this Duke defense that I love, their pass rush comes from everywhere, including yeah. the secondary. They get everybody back on their D-line including Dwayne Carter, one of the best tackles in the ACC. And they also run that 4-2-5, similar to Miami. So you don't need a whole lot of linebacker depth there, but they have it. They lost Shaka Hayward, but they're going to have Cam Dillon and Dorian Mousey causing some real havoc in the middle there. I'm all in on the Blue Devils this year. I really like the Blue Devils too. My only problem is they get smacked in the face right away, jumping right into Clemson. Yes, they do. They do. And that's a concern, but it's also, it sets a tone for the rest of the season. It kind of goes back to the Florida State-LSU matchup and Florida State doesn't need to win that game, but they do need to play them hard. Duke doesn't need to beat Clemson, but they do need to play him hard because after that, you get Louisiana Lafayette, Northwestern, and UConn. Three cakewalks. They'll be three and one. And then you get Notre Dame at home. And I'm not saying they're going to win that game because they won't. But again, you play that team hard, you get some momentum going into the next week against North Carolina State at home, Florida State on the road, Louisville on the road. Their problem is all these road games they have, they're going to cause them problems. That's what that really can, concerns me. Yeah. Yeah. So the schedule is tough, but for a team that is now defensive minded first it's not how it used to be but it is now they're going to wear some teams out and the offense is going to be just good enough to squeak by and win some games absolutely and I'm totally agree with you on the Blue Devils I think they're a team where North Carolina is going to win some shootouts if they beat North Carolina they are going to take the top third spot in the ACC yeah I think the, the Blue Devils definitely go dancing uh, we'll get to our final final standings projections here in just a minute but I, I love this team I love Mike Elko love what yeah. he's doing there and talking about love of Mike Elko there are some players I love to watch on this that aren't really in that top four category even on Miami jumping into NC State I love Brennan Armstrong I think he's going to be very good for them he's a guy who kind of got the bad rap at UVA with the injury bug and a lot of people are really excited to see him heading into 
2022. He had a really good 2021 in COVID year. He's back for his sixth year, I think. So he's got a lot of experience there and we've seen older guys do really well. But the biggest thing for me and Brennan Armstrong's success is the reconnection with Robert Ane, offensive coordinator. I think he's going to be super good for them and they should really offer a spoof transition off of Devin Leary for NC State. Yeah, and it's it's NC State. So that defense is going to be good. You know that. And the offense doesn't need to be necessarily what the 2021 Virginia Cavaliers were with that quarterback offensive coordinator combo, but they'll be good enough to get them at the very least dancing in a bowl game again. 100%. And another guy who I think will be good enough to get his team dancing is Phil Jerkovic at Pitt. Feels like everyone's forgotten about Pitt after winning the ACC in 2021. They still won nine games last year. Jerkovic is a guy who played really well at Boston College, and I expect him to really strive once if he can stay healthy at Pitt. And Pitt's always a team that they're always right there, ready to upset the big guys, right? And it's because of the style of football they play in that the defensive line is always going to be good, and they're always going to be successful at running the football. And yeah. now they bring in they bring in the, you know a new QB to set them on the right course, and there's going to be a perennial powerhouse going down to the Pitt Panthers this year. You can lock that in. Just looking at their schedule right now, I think, I honestly think that was the game that really concerned me for Duke, is having to play Pittsburgh to finish out their season. I think there's a lot of road games for them, but I think they could easily beat North Carolina in a shootout. I think they could easily take on Louisville. Notre Dame, that's going to be an interesting game for them. Florida State, maybe a trap game for Florida State if they're not careful. I 1000% believe that's a huge trap game for Florida State, and not only because of the style of football that Pitt plays, but because going back to what we talked about earlier in the show, Florida State's toughest part of their schedule is in the first four games. Realistically, that team should be going 8-0 in their final eight games, but guess what? You got the Pitt Panthers in Pittsburgh as one of your last games this season. Very easy to, very easy to overlook that team, and if they do, they're going to be in for a world of hurt. 100%. Any players you're looking forward to seeing out there in the ACC this year? It's more so the teams. It's more so the teams. I, I am I am really looking forward to the Duke Blue Devils. I am really looking forward to the Miami Hurricanes. You know what? Players I'm looking forward to seeing the entire Miami Hurricanes roster, as we just said. I am all in, all in on this team. So much talent, unproven talent, but they're going to prove it this year. Well, I'm excited to see how that turns out because we're going to jump into the final standings where I have Miami pretty high compared to what a lot of other outlets think they're going to do. So I'm just going to jump right into this. I got FSU finishing the top spot. Clemson at number two. No surprise. I think North Carolina wins enough shootouts to end up at three, but that is a volatile ass pick. I am not completely sold on them. I just think Drake May, which is a team like USC, is going to be good enough to win them games they shouldn't be winning. So I think they win a lot of those. Duke at four, Miami at five, NC State at six, Louisville and Jeff Brom at seven, Pitt at eight, Wake Forest at nine, and then just a whole bunch of just garbage. Syracuse, Boston College, Virginia Tech, Georgia Tech, and Virginia rounding it out. Yeah, I'm not even going to get into all the garbage because that's precisely what the bottom half of the ACC is. It is pure trash, and those are the teams that will get left behind in the realignment of college basketball conference yeah basketball conference exactly the top half though this is where i think this is the first final standings projection where we're going to have some some serious discrepancies i've got clemson winning this conference and the only reason why i do believe florida state is a more complete team they're deeper they return more guys their qb doesn't have to do as much as katie klubnik might have to and they have a better QB. We we, we agree on, on all that. I think they make enough big plays they didn't make last year, coupled with a, a schedule that's a tad bit easier than Florida State's to win this conference. Florida State comes in at number two. Number three, Miami Hurricanes. This team is going to win nine games this year. You mark my words. Number four, I'm going with North Carolina State. And here's why. We just talked about it briefly. The defense is going to be there. It always has been. It always has been for the past decade. And you bring in Brendan Armstrong, reunite him with his offensive coordinator. All they have to do is be good enough to win eight games. And they're going to finish in the top third of that conference. Number five, I'm going with the Duke Blue Devils. I think they're finishing above the North Carolina Tar Heels this season. Number six, I got North Carolina. Seven, give me Pitt. And eight, Louisville. I think Louisville goes through a lot of growing pains this year under Jeff Brom. Yeah. Um, this hire made sense. He's a hometown kid, went to Louisville, comes back, but they went deep into the transfer portal and are rebuilding a team and re reinventing its identity. I think that takes a little bit longer than one season. So yeah, kind of a huge shakeup for me at the top. I wouldn't be surprised to see FSU win the conference, obviously, but I do have Clemson winning it right now. And then Miami, NC State, and Duke at three, four, and five. I know a lot of other outlets are not going to agree with me there, but I'm confident in all three of those teams. I think they're going to have great seasons. Man, yeah, I really took the journalist route here and just went with some of the favorites for myself, but I really <laughs> like the shakeups you had. I think this is a conference where it will either be exactly how it plays out and we expect it to be preseason or there are going to be a ton of shakeups. And I think you alluded to it but a lot of these teams with unproven talent Miami especially 
Duke, I got to see a little more, but I think I'm a little more confident in North Carolina's offensive line to take that next step than you are. And I think that's why they jump up to three for me. But this conference is entirely volatile in the top eight. I think nine through 14, it's just a shit show. Yeah, nine through 14 is irrelevant. The top eight can pretty much finish in any order. And I I wouldn't be entirely surprised. No, 100%. And it's going to be a fun year for the ACC, a conference that we really don't know what it's going to look like in the future. So we're going to see a lot of teams trying to take that extra step to maybe maybe play their way into the Big 12, if we're being completely honest. We'll see what happens, though. Really approve it year. Well, that wraps up our show for today. We will see you later this week to talk some SEC as well as maybe jump into some of the best of the rest. I know Tulane is a team we have to discuss because they're going to be super fun down there in Louisiana. Other than that, we will see you guys later this week and have a good one.